Welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon of Motor City Hoops and Detroit Bad Boys, a former D1 Hooper and high school coach, current teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. And me, Omari Sanko for the second Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. And I got a question about if we're going to add something to that in just a second. But first, have to shout out our guy, Wes Davenport. Always blessed to be joined by him, our producer. And I got to give him some love. Him and Jack Kelly over at Detroit Bad Boys are doing weekly Thursday night, 8 p.m. Eastern DBB lives over on YouTube. They did their first one last Thursday. It was incredible. These two guys are rising stars. Wes, Jack Kelly, shout those guys out. So make sure you turn into those every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern. But Omari, is it off season? Oh, yet? We're getting close. That's like I have to wake up and feel like it's off season. I feel like there's always a like a wind-down period where you go like two weeks if I'm covering a game, but then, then it's like, okay, I guess it's actually the off-season now, so I can do it. And, you know, I also don't like change my the off-season over. There's like news going on because it's like, well, you know, like I'm still working. Like off-season though doesn't work, you know, like off-season though chills, you know, but I'm working, I'm working. So I, I got to wait till the, the, the vibe is right. So I don't know when that's going to be. Uh, but off-season though shall return as he always does every off-season. Uh, and like I said last week, he doesn't arrive. He's just... He just arrives. He's not announced. He's, you know, he just arrives. So one day you'll wake up. It'll be off season though. But you I don't put know that on Twitter, be. man. You put that on Twitter when I was asking for it. And I was like, man, Omari just brings out these lines. When you changed it last season, I was like, is this Omari? What's going on? Did somebody get a hold of his account? This is crazy. Why, why does it say off season though? Anytime I get so used, I don't know if this happens to you. I get so used to the image in the name, like the Twitter hint, that if if somebody changes it, it just throws me off. You know, if it's somebody, like if you were to change your Twitter picture, it would throw me off. So um, I, I don't know if anybody else is like that. So when you switched it to offseason O last year, it, it took me a while. Like mentally, it took me a little while to figure it out. So I'm, uh, I'm very anxiously awaiting to wake <laughs> up on a random Thursday and we have arrived with offseason O. Yeah, we will see. I don't want to yank people back and forth and go back from off season O to Omari Sanko for depending on what's happening in the news cycle. So, you know, it might be a while. We'll see. You know, they have a coaching search. Uh, you got some draft stuff coming up. So it may not feel like the real off season for a few months. So we'll see. We'll see. I think last last year I didn't do it until like probably after summer league, honestly. You know, it was just like, okay, like I woke up one day and then it was like, okay, I got six weeks of Nothing happening, so you know, so I'll see the dose season. So we'll see, we'll see. I might do it early, I might do it late. It's just a vibe thing. So I think that was probably why it was the first time I saw it because the first year I was around, that off season between year one and year two um, was extremely condensed because they were trying to make up for time from COVID and all of that. So essentially it was NBA finals and right into the draft and free agency and summer league and right into the next year. So I think last year was the first time I saw it. We did get a new rating and review on Apple. I want to shout on Spotify, Omari, we're at like 188 reviews, man, or rating. So if you want to give us a rating, if you've been waiting, now is the time, man. It would be incredible to hit 200 ratings before we hit even 65 episodes of the podcast. Obviously, Apple, they're coming in as well. But we got this review and it says, this show is a bucket, all uppercase bucket from Harry Mula. Killer analysis hosted by a duo with a great rapport. I always... I, it, it blows my mind that everybody mentions the rapport and the chemistry. Since moving back to Michigan, they have supplemented my Pistons intake, and I couldn't be happier to have discovered this show. Easy five stars, a must-listen for Pistons fan, and a show to look up when it comes to team coverage. Hope I can get to the next live show. Absolutely. Please come join us the next time we do that. But again, 
as always, thank you for the review. This show is a bucket. I like the bucket uh, <laughs> terminology here. No, thank you for the review. Uh, you know, it definitely means a lot that people sit down and, uh, you know, type out these paragraphs, you know, expressing support, you know, basically. I mean, it's literally just me and Bryce sitting down every week, you know, as two buddies who watch hoops. And, you know, I'm glad that that vibe comes across to the other side. So, you know, again, we always appreciate the love, you know, that, that, that people show that keeps us going. So, you know, feel free to keep that going. If you so please. Definitely gives us energy. Um, Amari, we're going to revisit the preseason expectations and predictions that we had for this season in just uh, a second. This is going to be rough. Some of these are way off. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, yeah, we're going to get we're gonna get some critiques. We got some when we did it, and uh, one of them particularly is, is rightfully so as the season played out. But first, we, we do have to update the coaching search. I text you this. We talked about it. I was like, I don't want to like dive into this for 20 minutes every episode because there, there's a lot of insights, especially with coaches we don't have. But that has been reported, quote unquote, um, Chris Quinn, Charles Lee, Kevin Ollie, a few names that it sounds like are coming in for interviews with the Pistons. I know you haven't been able to substantiate any of this stuff necessarily, but just in terms of those names, what are you thinking? Because Twitter obviously had a quick reaction. It seemed like there was a very negative reaction to Kevin Ollie, a very positive reaction to Chris Quinn. Charles Lee, it seems like, has, I mean, E-May is the name that I feel like a lot of people really want. But what were kind of your thoughts? I know some of these are names you've already written about. Yeah, I was off this past week. I had a couple of, you know, birthday parties to people close to me. So I, you know, turned the old, you know, phone off, you know, proverbial phone off. Phone off people phone that off. are how close to you, Amari? And, you, know, you know, just, you know, like just, just people just who are close to me. And okay. uh, we will, you know, I saw the, you know, reports Friday night, uh, you know, so I was off. I didn't follow up and, you know, I didn't con- confirm anything, but we have no reason to assume that they are not true, you know, given that these were names that are previously reported, uh, you know, last Sunday or uh, Monday. Uh, names that were on that list. So first, we'll start off with Charles Lee, uh, who has been on the Bud and Hoser bench for, I believe, nine years, which is a long time to be a head coach. And, you know, obvious candidate there. Uh, you know, you have Kevin Ali, uh, who I think is an intriguing candidate, you know, just being a UConn. Uh, I mean, he had a great run, you know, with UConn, and he's been an overtime elite. And you know, I would say his past probably been, been a bit more atypical compared to your usual head coach. So, uh, you know, and then Chris Quinn, uh, you know, I, I think we probably all grew up watching Chris Quinn, uh, you know, like noted backup point guard, uh, you know, played on some good, good teams. And uh, he's been on the Eric Spolster bench since 2014. Uh, so, you know, again, kind of like Charles D, you have a good coach and, uh, you know, one of the, the top assistants. I think that's a natural marriage for every building team looking to get their guy. So, uh, you know, three, you know, I think very, logical names as the business begin to search and uh, you know we'll see how this progresses over the next uh, couple weeks or so okay i want to get to the other stuff so i'm not going to add too much the only thing i want to say with the kevin ollie stuff omari is i see one of the negative things is oh he got fired from uconn after he won with somebody else's players and he never got hired again omari he never got hired again because he had the show cause which essentially makes you unhirable in college basketball and unless i'm missing something 
and and this this is possible. I didn't like take a deep. It was recruiting violations, which everybody in college basketball was doing, and he happened to get caught and get in trouble. And so I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying it's right, but I just don't agree with the oh he was unhirable as a quote unquote coach. Yes, he did something wrong. He had to be punished for it. He took it, you know, etc. I'm just saying it's not like he got fired from UConn um, because he just wasn't winning and then nobody else was willing to hire him because he was such an awful coach. Like he had recruiting violations that made him unhirable because of the sanctions NCAA, the NCAA put on him. So I just wanted to throw that. I'm not saying I love the idea of Kevin Ollie as the head coach of the pitches. I don't even know if I have a great opinion on it, but I just did want to get that out there. But let's get into what we're really here to talk about today, which is kind of putting a cap. This will probably be the last time we really put a bow on the season for the Pistons. And so we're going to go by player by player. Killian Hayes, we're going to start with Omari. Our pulse projected stat line, which I think was a combination, the average between our two predictions, was eight and a half points, three and a half rebounds, five assists, and two and a half three-point attempts. Killian Hayes actually finished the year over 10 points a game, just under three rebounds, 6.2 assists, and had just under four three-point attempts per game, Amari, but just 28%. So what do you think overall? Where did we miss? Where did we get it right? And what do you think about Killian Hayes' season? I would say we uh, definitely missed on the three-point attempts per game. Uh, we, you know, it seemed like two and a half, which, you know, I think coming into the year seemed pretty reasonable. Um you know, which again, I guess that was actually he had taken two point five the season before, so we didn't necessarily predict an increase. We just saw, uh, you know, I believe an increase in percentage, and the percentage was basically the same. But his attempts did go up, uh, you know, to a career high, almost four. I think he took two point eight as a rookie. So, you know, some of that was probably just we assumed like less minutes, like with K playing. You know, I think we just assumed well, you know, if Killian's only playing. Uh, you know, like maybe like 20 at night, you know, with Kate and Ivy in the fold, that, you know, if he's taking more per minute, he's probably not going to average more overall. And uh, I think some of the injuries, like especially when we get into Duran and whatnot as well, uh, you know, some players just end up playing more minutes or having bigger roles than uh, we could have predicted, you know, simply because of the injuries. So back to Killian, I think he was largely the same player he was last season, uh, you know, say for like that hot streak he had for like four or five weeks where, you know, he shot like with 37% from three, uh, uh, maybe like 44% overall. And, you know, the numbers were a lot healthier for what you want to see from that position. But, uh, you know, I think starts like certainly Killian just ended up playing a lot more minutes than we both probably expected. And I think his numbers, uh, especially the three-point volume, uh, just reflects that uh, he did average more minutes than he did last season. I wonder what his numbers would be if you take out that hot stretch. You know, as much as we want to buy into the hot stretch he had, I wonder what the numbers are if you remove that because I think the biggest thing with Killian still is the overall field goal percentage, right? He's never shot over 40% from the field, Omari. And I know a lot of that has to do with the low three-point percentage, but even his two-point percentage for his career is just 43%. So I think moving forward, that's a big thing with Killian Hayes. He's going to have to figure out is and we've talked about this from you know even his rookie season but now we have a much larger sample from Killian he's played 168 games he's played almost 4,500 minutes like we've had enough of a sample to see he's got to be able to finish I I, the one I don't I'm interested I think the one thing we saw improve and probably why the points per game went up was that little mid-range pull-up jumper you know like what eight to 12 feet is where he seems to get comfortable but anything else inside of the three-point line just isn't very good the three-point 
you know, is still under 30%. I think, you know, the defense, I, I don't know. I, I think he's a good defender. At times, I feel like we overrate him a little bit. Like, I don't think he's some elite perimeter defender. So I still want to see him come back next year. I still think he can be a good second unit point guard. Obviously, it's a make or break season for him. What do you really think? Was it just the bigger opportunity? Is that contributed to maybe the numbers being a little bit bigger than what we expected? I think it's the bigger opportunity. Uh, he played 21 Hundred minutes this past season. His previous high was his sophomore season. Well, for all these, his previous high was a sophomore season because he only played you know twenty six games as a rookie. Uh, but he played five hundred more minutes last season, and even just accounting for like per one hundred. So like just uh, not even accounting for the fact that he played more minutes, but he was taking more shots overall. He took more three pointers. He also took more two pointers, and he got to the line slightly more as well. So overall, we just saw a pretty uniform increase in minutes and volume. Uh, for Killian last season. And you mentioned that that dribble pull-up, uh, which I think really kind of helps him find his comfort level a lot of nights, just see a couple shots fall. And you mentioned the hot streak. What would the numbers be if he didn't have that hot streak? And without that five-week stretch, and I know, it's, you know it sounds reductive to say, well, we removed the players' best games and they were actually worse than they were last year. But you basically have this kind of five-week like oasis, I would say, for Killian where – uh, the numbers are just good, right? Like 36, 37% for three, like 44% overall, still passed, you know, took care of the ball at a high level. Defense was good. Just all around good guard. But you remove those five weeks, and, you know, the, the numbers kind of fall off of a cliff uh, before he had those back-to-back 20 balls at the end of the season. He was like, I think he was shooting like 16 or 17% from three uh, since the, the Paris game. And then he also started off the season like really, really ice cold. And, you know, we, we kind of said cold and, and, and hot for Killian, but his baseline has been an inefficient player. It's like that hot streak was still even so was more so like this is what you want to see from him over the course of a year and not just for those five weeks, uh, which, which makes it tough. Uh, I would also point out, uh, I'm just looking at the numbers now, uh, he actually shot, his two-point percentage actually declined this year compared to last year. He hit 45% of his two-pointers as a sophomore, 42.9% uh, uh, this past season. And, you know, that dribble pull up, like when it, it went in, it went in, but he also had periods where it just wasn't falling at all. Um, I think my main takeaway from the season is that, you know, we saw him sustain success for longer than a month, really, for the first time in his career, and that's a building block. But, you know, over the course of an 82-game season, he played 76 of them. Like, he was, uh, you know, one of the key contributors this year, probably one of the leaders in, in games played, if I had to guess. Like, I doubt there's more than two guys who played more games than Killian this past season. Uh, he just hasn't been able to sustain that over the course of a year, and I think that that really hurts him. Uh, you know, just given that it's really hard to make an impact, you know, in the league as a you know six five guard, uh, just not being able to score the ball consistently, and he's still gonna have something that becomes his bread and butter, butter whether it's getting to the line, whether it's a three ball, like he's gonna have something he can do every single night and rely on and feel good about it. I would say the aggressiveness and confidence did increase. Like you know, I feel like his first two years he missed one or two shots, he would just stop shooting. I thought we saw games this year where he was able to overcome that, and you know sometimes he kept missing shots, sometimes he made shots. I do think that that was a baby step in the right direction. And so to your point, he got more opportunity, and then with those opportunities. He he stayed aggressive and more confident, even if it didn't always result in production. Let's move to Isaiah Stewart. Obviously, we didn't get a full year of Isaiah Stewart. We projected eight and a half points, nine rebounds, one block. He actually outscored what we predicted, 11.3 points, a little less, 8.1 rebounds, and then under one block per game. He did average 1.4 assists per game. And then I think the big number, Amari, we, I think we did a total projection of this. I think we did it just spontaneously. So I don't know if we have the numbers, but 
he went up in terms of three-point attempts. His rookie year, 0.9. His second year, 0.6. This year, all the way up to 4.1 three-point attempts per game, which was obviously a massive jump and way more than what I would have expected. So the points per game was definitely thrusted by the uh, three-point uh, shooting. And I don't know if we initially projected like how many threes he would take per game or uh, the percentage or anything, which kind of feels like a missed opportunity. But he did shoot the three ball really well to start the year. I think he was like 38%. Um, like over the first, you know, 35 games or so. And uh, then he kind of went cold and he had a shoulder injury. And, you know, the extent that that hurt his percentage is kind of tough to say. I think only he really, re- like, really knows that. And he did acknowledge on media day that it probably did have some impact with his percentages declining. Really, I think, you know, I think we were pretty dead on with everything else. Uh, he took more threes than we expected. So, you know, just him capping out on the perimeter a bit more. Uh, obviously, it's going to affect the black numbers. But beyond that, I think it's pretty clear that. Uh, he was just a little bit more of a volume shooter than we both predicted, and uh, that led to him averaging a career high uh, 11 fights per game. Yeah, and if you look at the overall field goal percentage, obviously it dipped, but if you look at just the two-point percentage, that stayed and actually went up a little bit from his second season. So it really was that three-point percentage just because that was a more of his shot attempts than in previous years. I, I'm encouraged the more I look at the three-pointers. We, we saw good stretches. We saw stretches where he missed a bunch but then stayed confident. But for him to increase the number of three-point attempts the way he did and then still keep it at the percentage that we had seen in previous years, like I wouldn't have been surprised to see it actually be lower. So yes, we need to see another jump. That's going to be, it's going to be talked about all off season, um, depending on where he fits with the roster, depending on how the draft and free agency goes, but still just for him individually as a player, it's going to be about now taking those four attempts a game and shooting 35, 36% for an entire season. And I will say his offensive rebounds did go down, but again, that's going to be a product of playing at the four and playing with someone like Jalen Duran. you know, like how many offensive rebounding opportunities are there left whenever you're on the floor with Jalen? So um, I thought it was overall a good season for Stu. We saw him make some steps. Unfortunately, we didn't get the whole year. And to our next guy, another situation where we barely got to see him play. Cade Cunningham, a guy we don't get to talk a lot about, but we are going to take this time to revisit our preseason expectations for him. We projected 22 points, six rebounds, seven assists. In the 12 games that Cade played Amari, he scored right under 20 points, 6.6 rebounds, six assists. So I have a feeling we would have been right on with Cade. I think so. I mean, he was playing through shin pain and Clearly, I mean, something was going on. Like, in preseason, he just looked a lot more tentative than usual. And he had that four-game heater where he scored, like, I think he averaged, like, 28 points, like, 50% overall shooting, like, eight and seven assists and rebounds. And uh, you kind of saw him probably getting to that next level that you want to see for him in his, his sophomore year. But, yeah, I mean, he played 12 games. He was in him with a, a, a shin injury and kind of just tough to really make much shot of 12 games to begin with, but especially knowing in hindsight that he was hurt during those games, I think kind of drags that down. So hopefully next season, Cade will you know have a healthy offseason and we'll be able to more accurately, accurately project. Uh, really him in, you know, it's year three next year, but really it's year two because uh, he's really only played a season's worth of games so far. So he's really, you know, so needs to get that second season going. So uh, hopefully next year we'll be able to 
have a lot more to dive into as far as Kay's projections and what we can expect realistically with him healthy. Another guy that's had trouble staying healthy is Isaiah Livers. And I think this is one where a lot of guys we underpredicted. Isaiah Livers, I think we overpredicted here. So we projected eight points per game, four rebounds, one steal. Isaiah actually ended up at 6.7 points, 2.8 rebounds, and just half a steal a game. Where do you think we missed the boat with Isaiah Livers? What what do you think kind of led to him not being quite as productive as maybe what each of us thought coming into the season? Yeah, I mean, I think row-wise, we probably both assumed he would probably be in like the 20 to 25 minutes per game range, and he played 23. Uh, just the three-point percentage dipping, I think, really kind of hurt him. Uh, he went from 42.2% to 36.5 on slightly more attempts, but pretty, you know, even from last year. Uh, why that percentage dip? Like, it's kind of hard to say. It could have just been a rhythm thing. He was in and out. Uh, you know, could have just been he was uh, sustainably hot as a rookie, uh, knocking down 42%. And again, he only played 19 games. So, yeah, if he had played, you know, maybe like 60 games last year, maybe he would have shot 42. Maybe it would, would have been like 39 or 38, which obviously is still great. And he shot 37 this year, which is still good. So, Still a good three-point shooter, but yeah, like he had a bigger sample size and his percentage dipped, uh, you know, five or six points. So uh, pretty straightforward there. And that's just one of those things that, you know, he's a young shooter. It's just tough to predict exactly how good or how uh, not good he'll be in that area, but still pretty good, just not as elite as he was at the rookie. Yeah, and I think for Isaiah Livers, I, I feel like he does have to be elite shooting the three ball. Um, looking at per 100 possessions between the two seasons, again, it was just 19 games. This year, we at least got 52, but, you know, across the board, field goal attempts are essentially the same, three-point attempts, free throw attempts, all of that, but even his rebounding went down, his assists went down, his steals went down, um, you know, so his overall points, all of that stuff, it seems like all of the, the even the offensive and defensive rating went down it wasn't a major step back but I guess where it's a disappointment for me Omari is I was expecting to see a major step forward you know so it's like okay if if what if his rookie year was the baseline then what he did this year is just okay but I was expecting Isaiah Liverson to take a step forward and instead he took a small step back or even if you just want to argue he stayed the same but I think Isaiah has to be an elite three-point shooter I know he does some stuff off the bounce I don't really think that that's where his value lies so I'm interested to see going into the offseason see what you think how much he plays into this wing position and and the the changeover coming forward we're going to talk about Hami here in the next segment um i wonder if they still see isaiah as like a second unit wing playing into this rotation obviously he's going to be on the roster but i could see them bringing in some guys where isaiah isn't really in the rotation next year if you know they say they draft a brandon miller bring in a free agent you still got boy on there's a chance where livers isn't in the rotation next year and i thought this was really his chance to kind of solidify that so um i've been a big livers guy i'm not like saying I'm done with him, like nothing crazy like that. It just, I feel like it would maybe a little bit of a missed opportunity, but the team may feel different about the season he had. I think Isaiah Livers, I think he, he has a good chance to still play next year. Like he could play him two through four, uh, just his defensive communication. I think he's a guy who will uh, find ways to stay on the floor as long as that shot's falling. Uh, but definitely a big offseason for him because they did him to really lock into that three and D row and 36.5% solid, but not quite you know, what you want to see from like a, a, a court, court three and D guard. You want to probably see that uh, a few ticks higher, uh, which I, you know, I think he could do it. Uh, you know, he does a big season next year because he'll be a restricted free agent in 2024. Uh, you know, some of the Pistons pick up his club option, which I'm sure they will. And, you know, this team just praises him a lot. Like he's a really smart, bright guy and 
uh, just his ability to organize the defense, I think as the team gets better, he will his skill set will shine even more. He's probably not a guy you want to, you know, have to cover a heavier load than, than you want. Like most three and D guys, like you know, to see Mac Contavious kind of will pope, but he's taking you know seventeen shots. You know, that's probably not a good role for him. So, uh, you know, I think Isaiah will be fine, but he's definitely got to get back to the rhythm he had as a rookie. All right, we're gonna go to a short break, and then when we come back, we're gonna talk Marvin Bagley the third, Hamadou Diallo, and the two biggest misses for Amari and I, the rookies Jalen Duran and Jaden Ivey. All right, we're back with segment two, uh, going through our preseason player predictions and how wrong we were on <laughs> several of them. And this is one we were pretty wrong on, although in defense of us, uh, there is no way we could have really known his role and how it would change coming into the season. So Marvin Bagley the third, uh, where we projected 16 points, eight rebounds in a block. He averaged 12 points, 6.4 rebounds, and 0.7 bucks. So, uh, you know, Bryce, I'll, I'll let you lead off with this one. But there's a lot of stuff I think that happened that really made it impossible to project where Marvin Bagley would fall this year just from a role standpoint. I think we thought he was going to start, right? I, yeah. I assume that's where— Because we did just, it before—I think we did it before the Boyan trade, right? We definitely did it. We, yeah. we definitely did it before the Boyan trade mm-hmm. um, and because Boyan wasn't in there. And so I think we thought he was going to start. Obviously, we didn't know they were going to trade for James Wiseman. And this is going to play into a player we talked about a little bit. I, even though we were different about what we thought was going to be Jalen Duren's role— we still, I don't think either of us thought Jalen Duran was going to play as many minutes and as big a role and start as many games as what he did. So I think the big miss here for us was just thinking that Marvin Bagley was probably going to get to start at the five. And I would assume, thinking back to it, you know, he had just got the contract, right? We were sitting in a situation where Troy Weaver had just traded for Marvin Bagley the third. He had given him a three-year, $36 million contract with no team option on year three. Seemed like he really liked him. And so we're sitting here going, they're going to give this kid a chance. And and they may have, right? Again, injuries seem to be the, like, as we go through this, I realize even more, Amari, how much this team dealt with injuries. We talk about Cade, but think about all the other injuries we've already talked about, and we haven't even discussed how many games Boyan and Burke said at the end of the season. So, you know, if we wanted to talk big picture record-wise, that plays into it. But real quick, before I let you go, I thought Bagley had a nice end to the season. He played some games that I really liked and was really interested by. So, you know, whatever about the contract, we don't need to get into that. But I'm still somewhat intrigued by Marvin Bagley the third, even though we obviously overshot it with this. You know, I think we had him coming into the year as a starter just with the Boyan trade, you know, before the Boyan trade, and they made a big investment. So it just seemed like he would be a guy who would occupy you know, one of those starting spots, you know, I think we had Isaiah Stewart being like maybe the, more the four spacing kind of defensive roamer, uh, you know, of the two in that front court, Bagley playing closer to the rim and more to his strengths. Uh, you know, beyond that, I think the injuries really hurt him. He played 42 games and uh, just ticky-tacky fluke injuries, right? Like he lands with a guy's foot getting back in transition and he, you know, gets caught on the screen or something and it's, he breaks his fingers. It's really just random, unfortunate stuff. Uh, he did play really well, you know, I thought to the end of the year. I think he hit... He shot like I think he shot nine of nineteen from three in his last ten games, uh, which you know I don't know if he'll ever be like a volume guy, but you know if you're looking at just who can play the four, you know of these of these guys on the roster, uh, you know I think Bagley probably more natural as a five, but just because he can drive from the perimeter and because he can shoot, like it kind of helps him, uh, you know, do things that you're probably not going to get from Wiseman or from Durant. 
at the four. Um, the main, yeah, the main issue for him was just Rogue. I mean, you know, Duran, who we'll talk about in a little bit, you know, started, you know, I think 31 games, and that was tough to predict coming in. And, you know, Boyan, all these things, like, I just thought Dagley had a really weird season. But when he did actually get consistent into a groove, you could see that he's a talented player. Uh, he's a guy, you can start him, bring him off the bench. He's going to be pretty consistent. Uh, I, don't, I feel like he didn't really have just like a lot of outright bad games, right? Like it was always something he was bringing when he was out there. And through all the sort of things working against him, I did think that he had a solid year. Uh, the main issue was just, I think, row and then two the injuries. I don't have a whole lot of concerns with bringing all three of those bigs back in Duran, Wiseman, Bagley. I think you have to figure out kind of the hierarchy of that and who you're going to prioritize minutes and all that. But again, the theme of this podcast, and we didn't go into it, is, is the injuries, right? And the Pistons in the three years that I've watched this team religiously over the past three have always dealt with injuries, especially with their big, and you know, that's just kind of natural, right? Big guys, you have, you know, seven footers, all this weight, like they're going to get injured, you know, and hopefully not majorly injured, but they roll an ankle, they tweak this, maybe they need a couple games rest. And so I think you can find minutes for all those guys. That's a conversation for when we dive into the offseason a little bit more. A guy that overperformed our expectations was actually Hamadou Diallo. And I think this is where, like, I think we overprojected Isaiah Livers and then maybe underprojected Hami. He had a projected stat line from us of seven points, four rebounds, one assist. And he actually came in with 9.3 points per game, three and a half rebounds, one assist. Again, another guy who didn't play a ton of games, especially late because of injury. And I will just say, I feel like this happened because Hamadou Diallo fully accepted his role and who he was as a basketball player in the NBA. He went like a whole month without even attempting a three-pointer. And I feel like the team also found a nice little role for him in the niche offensively. He can be disruptive defensively, although it's not always like... within the team construct, but I thought Hami had a really good season, kind of reminded everybody like, hey, I'm here and I'm a productive player. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what they do with him this offseason. Yeah, Hami is really unique. And you mentioned the three-point shooting. Uh, he, you know, this was a career low for him and three-point tips per game, uh, which actually ended up being really good because that's just not, that's not who he is. Like he always, he also struggles at the line, you know, which is unique for a six-five guard. In a lot of ways, offensively, he is more of like an athletic four than he is like a wing, right? Like we kind of talked to him about him in like this wing category, you know, him being six five and he looks the part. But his best skills are his interior finishing and his rebounding. And the third best skill is just his pure leaping ability, which of course gives him a lot of utility in both of those categories. So he's a unique player, and I think it took the person some time to figure out how to best utilize him. Uh, but it's also him just like buying into his role, right? Like we saw a lot of opportunities where teams were giving him. That three, because he wanted Hami to take three. He don't want him getting a side where he's one of the best finishers of any player his size. And, uh, you know, like he's, he's, he quickly gets downhill. Like he's a good cutter. Uh, you could even put him in the dunker spot, you know, and feel pretty good about it just because he can out- outleap a lot of guys. And he was a lot of fun to watch this season, like really unique. There was a stretch where I think they had like three bigs out. And they even played him like some small ball five. And I mean, you don't want him there like defensively for like the whole game, right? But like even that kind of worked in a sense just because he could, you know, jump up and finish lives. He gets offensive rebounds. He does a lot of big man stuff at 6'5. So uh, we were actually pretty dead on with him. Like we got the assists, we got the rebounds. He averaged slightly more points. And, you know, I think a lot of that was just us not being able to predict the extent that he would give up the three ball and just. It, intentionally just get inside and make things happen at the rim. Uh, so overall, like I thought he had a good season, but he's also such a unique player that's tough to 
figure out like his exact value as he goes to unrestricted free agency and how he fits into next year's team. It would be hard for us to predict for him to have a career year from the field. So, you know, just looking at his seasons, he shot 57% from the field this year. He had never been over 50 in any other season, which is something to take into account moving forward when you start talking about the contract he's going to get and those type of things. Did he fully buy into his role? Is, is he willing to do that? Was it an outlier year? You know, like those are the things that teams really have to look at. I think what's really important for Hunt compared to a lot of guys is who is the new coach? This is where I think the new coach plays into Hami a lot because Hami does... So Isaiah Livers, I feel like, is just your prototypical archetype of a 3 and D, right? Would you agree? Like, he's going to catch and shoot threes and then defend, be a good team defender, and you can almost find a role for him within any offensive and defensive scheme. With Hami, I think it's a little bit different. Are you going to hire a coach who's willing to be and able to be creative with a six foot five guard slash four man who you're going to try to short roll with, put in the dunker spot and defensively is probably best if you just let him hound the other team's best player, but not do anything else or try to cause havoc. So I think the coaching decision, not that you should make the coaching decision based on Hami, but I think the coaching decision is huge for Hamadou Diallo just in terms of whether he stays in Detroit or not. He's going to get a contract somewhere no matter what, but I'm just saying in terms of staying in Detroit, it probably comes down to yes, my Money, but also who's the coach and kind of what are their philosophies on both ends of the court? Because mm-hmm. I'll tell you the Pistons are, you know, for sure open uh, to bringing Hami back. Like he's just a great fit in the locker room, great guy. Uh, you know, just his, his, his role to have like that designated energy player who can come in and just immediately bring life because this team kind of struggled with that at points last season, just not playing with any life. Hami would come in and the game changes. Uh, that's a valuable thing to have. It's just, you know, if he were... Uh, a really strong outside shooter and not just like this sort of unique interior guy. Uh, I think that question probably wouldn't be there as much, right? Because you can, uh, you know, I think the issue is also that he is inconsistent defensively. And if he were able to like really, you know, hold down opposing weeds defensively, I think that would help. But he doesn't always do that. Uh, So, you know, I think just from a priority standpoint, like, you know, he's more of a, like the Pistons have to get like a big swing at free agency or clearly just get like some three and D help. Like, you know, Trey Weaver mentioned that during his visibility last week. And I think it's just really clear that this team has a need for a big wing who can defend and that's not Holly. So a lot of that would be dictated by his market, right? Like if he has a good deal elsewhere, he could make eight, nine million. And the Pistons are like, Hey, we're trying to sign this every guy who can touch back in a few days. Maybe he's like, all right, I'm just going to go to this other team. You know, which I think could also likely happen. There's also a chance the market is not as strong as he probably hopes. And then the Pistons can uh, take care of business as a free agency and then come back and say, we can give you, you know, this, that, you know, for this many years. And he says, yes. So it really, to me, it's a coin flip whether or not he comes back. And a lot of that just kind of comes down to what the Pistons are able to get done in free agency first uh, as far as filling those primary needs. Yeah, I agree. I, I want him on a lower contract, you know, which I want Hami to get paid. I want him to get his money. And so I feel bad saying that, but at the right deal, I think he's a really good 11th, 12th man on a roster for all the things you said, especially the energy when you get into the dog days of the season, hopefully a season next year where the Pistons are truly competing night in and night out trying to win games. And he's one of those guys that helps you win a couple games just because he comes in off the bench, takes a charge, gets a block, highlight dunk, and then just energizes the arena. So let's get to the two rookies. Um, I'm sure this is really who everybody's been waiting for, and we're uh, making you wait 35 minutes into the episode to get it. But first, Jalen Duran, 
I would say I feel like Jalen Dern is my biggest miss in terms of this season. I know we'll talk about Ivy and maybe people would say it's Ivy, but I feel like I was pretty high on Jaden Ivy when a lot of others weren't. But Jalen Dern, I said nobody was higher on Jalen Dern's long-term ceiling than me, but I don't think I was way too low on his current rookie year ability. So we projected 5.5 points, three and a half rebounds, one block. Jalen Duran obviously averaged 9.1 points, 8.9 rebounds. We were good on the blocks. He didn't even average a block per game. I thought he would spend some time in the G League. I'm an idiot. But Jalen Duran exceeded a lot of expectations, probably not just ours, but obviously a really nice rookie season from the big man out of Memphis. Yeah, so going back to Bagley, like we, you know, expect he's going to start and maybe Isaiah Seward starts. And then it's like, well, you know, where exactly does Jalen Duran fit in? And, you know, I kind of talked about it going into the season. I think what really helps Jalen Duran is that he is the only Jalen Duran on the roster. And I was probably a little bit lower on him playing in the G League than you, uh, you know, which was more of a, for me, uh, had more to do with the fact that I just didn't think G League reps would help him as much just because he's 6'11", super athletic. You don't see those types in the G League because they're typically uh, NBA ready uh, for a variety of reasons. But, Again, like Bagley ended up missing part of preseason and then uh, like the first 20 games of the regular season. And now you're pretty thin up front and Jalen Duran has to play. And the Pistons also fully just let Duran's Noel just be like that emergency option, which I think coming into the season, out of feeling that he probably wouldn't play as much as some you know people probably hoped. But, you know, for him to be uh, stacking up the did not plays as he did, it's just, again, it's just one of those things you can't really predict until you get into the year. Uh, but what I think the main thrust behind Jalen Duran playing as much as he did is that he was just ready. I mean, he came in, he was immediately the lob catching, uh, offensive rebounding, like nightly threat that he was at Memphis. And defensively, you know, like any rookie big, he has a ways to go. I mean, how often the rookie bigs come in and like are immediately good, right? Like, you know, Bobby Kessler in the last two years, that might be the entire list. And he's the average player in the NBA, so you expect him to, you know, not come in and just immediately make an impact on that side of the floor. But, just great season for Durant overall. I mean, he was exciting. You saw the flashing upside. You saw the, the defensive upside. The athleticism, rebounding, like day one has been great. And he also started, I believe, 31 games. Yeah, he started 31 of his 67 games, which is really tough to predict coming in just with the injuries they had in their front court. So great season for, for Jalen Durant. I mean, he had a way bigger role than I think a lot of people would have guessed for him coming in. And that really sets him up for a really big year, too. I just wanted to defend my G League thing real quick because I agree and I've come to understand even more like it was just he was going to be such a physical freak at that even at that level that he was just going to do that and people tried to tell me that my rationale for wanting Duran to get G League minutes was I wanted him to get minutes and I wanted him to get usage because of the ceiling I see from Jalen Duran. I wanted him getting short roll reps. I wanted him getting DHO reps. I wanted the the offense, not just entirely running through him, but I wanted him to get a lot of usage where he wasn't just simply catching lobs and offensive rebounding. Now, what ended up happening, especially with Kate out and all these other bigs, her or in Nerland's case, never playing, he got plenty of minutes and he probably even got more usage than I would have guessed with the Detroit team 
especially, you know, they weren't very good and all these other things. So he got a lot of the reps that I wanted him to get with the Pistons, which is obviously better than him getting him in the G League anyway. So I do, I think it worked out the way I wanted, but that was, I guess my thought process was, I don't want him to come in the league and just be a lob threat, just be a big athletic dude. I, I think he's more skilled than that. Like, I think he can pass. I think he can dribble. I want him working on his shot. And so he got enough of those reps. And some would argue like, that's the stuff you do in practice. You don't need game reps for it. Like that may be the case as well. So I just wanted to defend that real quick. Overall, I don't know if you agree with this or more. I think what made Jalen Duran's rookie season such a success compared to what we projected was just the maturity he had. And I know we've talked about he doesn't like being referred to as the youngest player in the league, but for being the youngest player in the league, he sure showed a lot of maturity, both physically, but even like mentally, emotionally, all of that, just handling the grind of an NBA season. Yeah, he did. And that's, again, on everything you can't really predict until you get into the year is how a rookie will handle the grind and just the pace of everything that comes with the NBA. Uh, but Durham was ready. I mean, just talking to him every day, you would not think that he is as young as he is. And he, you know, very politely reminds you know, the media <laughs> sometimes. Like, I, you know, I don't necessarily want that to be like my MO, like I'm young. And, like I remember I talked to him for Surrey in December and he said, I don't want it to ever be like, we have to snow walk Jalen. Like he wanted to be known for being ready and all that. So it just speaks to his mindset and his readiness and, you know, just his approach to his rookie season that, you know, he will, I would assume he would be second team while rookie, uh, you know, like once those teams are announced, I, you know, I'm, I'm out of ballot. I voted for him second team. I voted for Jalen Ivey uh, first team. And we'll talk about Ivey next, but, you know, I thought both of those guys really, uh, checked off out of the boxes you want to see from them as rookies. All right, Jaden Ivey, Pulse projected stat lines, and this is the one we took the most heat right from day one. I remember the DBB comments. And rightfully so. Rightfully so now. Yeah. 11 and a half points per game, four rebounds, three and a half assists. Jaden Ivey ends the season 16.3 points per game, 3.9 rebounds, so we were close on the rebounds, or right at the rebounds, 5.2 assists, in 31 minutes and 73 games started. Just an incredible, incredible offensive rookie season from Jaden Ivey. So we had that uh, projected stat line and people were like, let's look at the other athletic rookies who have played. Like they've, you know, just from a minute standpoint alone and shot attempts, he's going to be way above that. People were like, he's going to average like 15, 16, 17. And it's funny, like after we came out the episode and people were making those points, I was like, we probably, we, we probably did go a little bit too low, right? And we went a lot too low because he averaged... Uh, five more points, uh, assists, like everything was just higher, I think, except the rebounds that we projected for him. Again, I would say K got hurt, so that cleared out a lot of minutes for Ivy that may not have been there to begin with. He was a day one starter, but there was never a point in the season where K, where, you know, Dwayne Casey was like, uh, you know, Cade and Burks are rolling or Cade and Hayes are rolling or whatever. So we're not going to let Ivy close his game out. Like he wasn't best early too often, if at all. Like he just kind of got the full go uh, from day one to the very end. And, you know, I would say efficiency wise, he probably wasn't really where you want him to be, which like he's a rookie guard. You expect that 41.6% uh, overall is not good for a guard who gets downhill. But I think that was offset by better than expected shooting where he was shot 34%. And I think in like after January 1st, that crawled up to like 36 something percent, which is like really, really healthy for a guard who really didn't shoot the ball at all in college. Like that was probably the biggest area of improvement that we saw compared to college where he just attacked the game differently. Like he would sometimes 
especially toward the end, opened up games by just shooting threes, right? And he gets a couple to fall, and now he gets a run rate to the rim the rest of the night, you know, because defense have to come all the way up on him. And just, I mean, good rookie season. I mean, the efficiency, again, wasn't there, but just the playmaking growth, shooting growth, like, I think we saw enough to say uh, he's got a pretty high ceiling ahead of him. I think what happened for us is looking at what we projected for the team, we projected them to only score 105 points per game, and they they actually scored 110, which was still 29th in the league. So we almost, we projected them to like be historic, not historically bad, but you know, over the, this decade of scoring or whatever, you know, really bad. And so I think we I think we overcompensated by, I think I remember having a conversation like we got to make sure we don't project them to have, you know, average 130 points per game. And so I think we, especially on the points we went under assists wise, I don't feel bad about only projecting three and a half assists because again, I think I've been screaming from the rooftops that he was a good passer. It was underrated and people were like crushing that way too much. The idea was that Cade Cunningham was going to be averaging six, seven, eight assists a game and that Jaden Ivey wouldn't have the ball in his hands quite as much. So I don't even, I'm not even going to try to defend that because I feel very comfortable about where I was with Jaden Ivey as a passer. And I'm just glad that it showcased itself in the NBA. Obviously, with the scoring, we were low in general. Like, we were obviously wrong, but I think we, like, overcompensated by being like, we can't project him to score too many points as a team. And so I think for a lot of players, um, other than, like, Marvin Bagley, and that's the other thing. So I think we were very high on Marvin Bagley's scoring. We didn't talk about Sadiq Bey because obviously he got traded. We were pretty high on Sadiq Bey's scoring and then Cade. So I think what we had was Cade at, like, 20 a game, 22 Sadiq and Bagley at 16 to at 18. So it was like, is there room for another guy to average 16 or 18 points a game? So um, again, I know I'm trying to defend us. We were wrong. I get it. You know, looking back, it was foolish, but that that's where our mindsets were. I think whenever trying to project this. And I also add that uh, there was just inflation, offensive inflation as a whole over this past season where like one of five sounds really low. Right. And so you consider that they averaged like 104.8, uh, last season, you know, okay. points per game. And you can look at the numbers and you will see that the points that the Pistons averaged, uh, you know, which was 109, right? Uh, that would have been closer to 20, uh, 20 of overall the season before than it was this past season. And like the worst team in the NBA uh, last season scored five more points per game than the season before. So there was just this overall increase in offensive production that we couldn't really predict coming into the year. And I also factored into several guys, I think, averaging more points than we expected because just, you know, obviously with Kate, you know, being cleared out and Bogey coming in and, you know, scoring 22, they kind of replaced a lot of what we expected from Kate. But overall, I think the Pistons, every even the worst team scored more points this past season than they did two years ago. So uh, you just kind of count for like an overall five points per game increase average for like the entire NBA. Like that's a lot of extra production uh, for the entire league as a whole. Uh, but even so, I think even just looking at the fact that Ivy was probably going to average around 20, like 30, like maybe 25, 30 minutes a game, uh, which is not stuff to project. Like Killian never really played that many. So you have Killian and Kate. So I'm going to use left over for Ivy. Uh, just like a lot of noise, I think makes it tough to come in. But even so, 11.5 was too low. Probably should have been in like the, the 13 to 14 range. Uh, you know, so it, it just speaks, I think, to Ivy as a whole. Just uh, how consistently became, you know, late in the year. 
and obviously to the shooting that we kind of talked about previously that was better than we both expected. I was going to say, to finish this off, to stop like kind of protecting ourselves and to give <laughs> the love to Jay Nivey, which is what he deserves. The three-point shooting, which you already mentioned, one, the volume was more than what I would have guessed and the efficiency at 34%. I, I'm sorry. I think if he's a 34, 35% three-point shooter at, what is this, 7.4 attempts per 100 possessions, I think that's plenty good for him to play on, off ball, whatever role you need him to. So if he can do that, maybe maybe improve just a little bit, you're good. And then where he really got better than what I expected was in the mid-range. I talked about this coming into the season was he was not very good in the mid-range. Now the runner floater never came around, but just the true mid-range pull-up, he improves a ton in his rookie season, especially compared to his sophomore year at Purdue. So I, that's where Jay Nivey deserves all the credit for exceeding what our expectations were, albeit they being lower than what they should have been to start with. Just a really incredible rookie season from Ivy. Very excited to continue to talk about him this offseason, how he fits with Cade, and as we start to look about rounding out this roster. But we do need to go ahead and go to a short break. And when we come back, we're actually going to talk the NBA in general. The play-in games have happened. The first games of the playoffs, the true playoffs have started round one games. So we're going to dive into some of the ones we saw, some of the storylines, how they may apply to our Detroit Pistons. We'll get into all of that after this short break. All right, we are back with our final segment and we're going to get into some playoff action. Talk about the league as a whole. Uh, first, I will acknowledge I had a busy weekend, so I didn't watch those basketballs I plan on watching, but Bryce, I'm going to ask you, did you watch Lakers Grizzlies yesterday? I am him. I absolutely yeah. did. Austin Reeves is like a phenomenon right now. I I had somebody tweet me that 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 video of him, I think it was after he hit he like snaked the ball screen, hit the mid-range jumper and then he's screaming I am him. I am him was the, I, I'm not on Reddit, but it was like the number one video on Reddit backslash all or what. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like it's really popular. So um, yes, to answer your question, I did watch uh, the majority of that game. It was a good game. Uh, you know, I was like just talking to people while I was watching the game and, you know, I was curious like how Memphis would be able to respond to AD because it's like, oh, you don't have Stephen Adams, you don't have Brennan Clark. Yeah. Uh, like AD is AD, right? So, you know, he's probably just going to feast that he did. He has seven blocks. Uh, but, you know, again, like I think what's kind of fun, uh, you know, about that game is one, like, okay, you have LeBron and AD, but like Austin Reeves and Reed Hachimura ended up being the guys to kind of carry them to victory. And like one, just like shout out to like that that trade deadline with Lakers had when they turned yes, you know, yes. Westbrook. And, they just completely fleshed out their roster from like a depth standpoint, and they turned a weakness into a strength. And we, on this pod, we talk a lot about just like rows and what guys can feel like X and Y uh, when you are competing. And, you know, just have a guy who can heat up and like a Rui Hachimura, who he kind of reminds me of Sadiq Bay in some ways, like just being sort of like a big, bulky forward. Uh, he's like really self defensively. Like you can just see like guys could just kind of like run right, right past him. He's not like the most flexible guy, but just being able to heat up from three and uh, just do that, that, that type of thing. And Sadiq, he, he's been playing pretty well for Atlanta too. Uh, you know, not to rub the knife in any Pistons fans here. No, we need to talk about that though. I like that trade, but uh, like that, I think that is a very, like those guys could win you games. Like just an Austin Reeves, a guy who could like play make and like get hot from three. You look at the the Pistons, and I honestly kind of reminded me of like Boogie and Burks a little bit. Like you know, like the Pistons win seventeen games, and it's like you don't 
Uh, it's like, you know, like, why do you keep these guys? But just having players who can heat up and make plays like a playoff game, like could win you a game. And I think that's what the Pistons were thinking when they held on to Bowie and Burks this past offseason. It's like, or this past trade deadline. It's like, these guys could win us games like when we get to that point and you need those those types of shot makers. Like LeBron was, I don't know, I mean, first he had in the fourth quarter, but he didn't do a whole lot and they still won. Yeah, it's all about roles, right? I mean, I think yeah. that's the thing. Boy, if Boyan's your number one option, you're probably not a, a playoff team. But if Boyan is your fourth option, like that's incredible. Are you telling? Are you kidding me? If if the Pistons are able to, however they work this roster and have Boyan as their fourth option next year, whether as a starter coming off the bench, that's huge. So first, I thought it was incredible that Austin Reeves is literally running the Lakers half court offense to close out that game. Like they were putting the ball in Austin Reeves' hands and he was going crazy. Now to further make this worse for the Pistons, Detroit wanted to draft him. Detroit tried to draft him in the second round and him and his agent were like, no, nah, we're good. They would rather go into undrafted free agency and sign with the Lakers. And obviously that's worked out for Austin and them, which when I heard that story, I was like, holy crap, like this is crazy that this stuff really happens. And how good would Austin Reeves be with the, the Detroit Pistons? But what the Lakers did at the deadline finally was they put a roster around LeBron and AD that makes sense. I mean, even someone like Jared Vanderbilt, they started Jared Vanderbilt on John Morant in this game. And so they have some guys that can knock down shots and like it just the roster makes sense now. And then to Sadiq Omari, I've, I've watched some Hawks games, the playing games, all that. Sadiq is in a role where Sadiq needs to be, right? Like you watch him and I think like two thirds of his attempts are three pointers, catch and shoot three point attempts. It gives him more energy on the defensive end where he's still not great, but he can hold up at times. And so that's what the NBA is about. That's when I feel like you really turn a corner as a team is when all these guys fall into place in terms of the hierarchy of number one option, number two option, number three option, et cetera. And guys can really star in their role. And that's what we've seen from some of these teams. Playoffs in a lot of ways is just a different game yes. from the regular season. Uh, you know, you really see how just having players who can fill certain roles or archetypes can really play off. Like you mentioned, Jared Vanderbilt, you know, guarding Ja, uh, which, you know, I think what helps with that is that, you know, well, one, Jared Vanderbilt's an extremely mobile, uh, big, you know, who can defend multiple positions, but also knowing that Ja likes to get downhill probably makes it a little bit easier to put a big on him knowing that you're probably going to be playing, you know, essentially job coverage on a guy like that anyway. Like if John takes five, six threes, and you know, even if he hits a few of them, like you could live with that, knowing that he's not going to do that every single night. Uh, like I look at Isaiah Stewart, right? You know, a guy who, uh, you know, probably is more of a role player type of thing. But, you know, you could probably put Isaiah Stewart on like a, a small, quick guard like that in the playoffs and uh, feel okay. Uh, like, again, like De'Aaron Fox never got, I think he had, uh, you know, three threes in like the second half or four or whatever, but he's a non-shooter, right? So you can probably stick a big on him and feel somewhat big about it, even though he's so fast. So <laughs> a lot of bigs probably get get blitzed. But, uh, you know, I thought that, that was a good game. Uh, Bryce, what else kind of stood out to you over, over this weekend from what games you were able to watch? I know you got stuff going on too, so I don't know. I'm just sure able to actually sit down and watch this past weekend. Yeah, I was working, so I tried to catch and spend some time with the family, but I, I caught games here. I don't know if you saw this one, but I watched the Knicks and the Cavs game. And Jalen Brunson and Donovan Mitchell were a lot of fun just going back and forth at each other. And specifically, Jalen Brunson looked really, really good in this game. He was balling out. And it just, it made me, I, I couldn't help but think as those two guys are balling. James Harden has a good game. Darren Fox goes crazy against the Warriors. Like everybody, I, I always relate this stuff back to the Pistons. And everybody's like, it's a wing league. It's a wing league. It's a wing league. And I'm like, is it only a wing league? 
because like I'm watching a bunch of little dudes, I didn't mention Steph Curry, go absolutely crazy. So again, not to like turn this into the Scoot versus Brandon Miller conversation, but is like, is somebody that if Scoot is as good as what people think, just because he's 6'2", are you telling me he can't win in the playoffs? Because these little dudes, and I realize we're not talking about like 5'10", guys, we're talking about 6'2", 6'3", 6'4", but these little dudes are balling and they're controlling the game still, Amari. I mean, John Morant even, I know he's a freak athlete, but that's what I'm saying. It's like, I don't know that it's only a wing league, I guess, as I was watching these games. I think it's like, like you could win with guards. It's more so like what's the ceiling for those types sure. of teams. Uh, you know, I'd be curious to see how deep the Cavs and the Knicks are able to get, you know, just given, like, one Brunson has exceeded all expectations. And, uh, you know, the leap he said this past season was probably bigger than even, like, maybe his most uh, prominent fans could even predict, right? You know, coming to, you know, a team and you're essentially, you know, you could debate whether he or Render like, the number one option. But, like, really, they're both number one options, right? And, you know, I think of the two, uh, Brunson probably gives you a little bit more just from, like, a, a playmaking standpoint. So you can win with those types of players. Uh, I would be curious to see, like, once you get to, like, uh, like you're playing, like, a Philly or, like, a Milwaukee or one of those teams, just, like, how well you hold up. Uh, you know, Cleveland did not rebound very well. Um, you know, does that front court, you know, hold up against, like, an Embiid or a Giannis and Brick? Uh, like, like what could happen at, at that point? And then can you survive, uh, you know, one of those guards having an off night, you know, which is going to happen at some point? And when that happens, like, I think what hurts small guards is if you're not hitting shots that a lot of your value just kind of falls off of the cliff, right? Where if you're a wing or a big, at least you can still add a lot on defense. I can kind of help you get to like that next point. Like AD, I mean, if he did have a great offensive night, like what he did defensively just was like game-changing stuff. So I think it just hurts guards more in the playoffs when you have an off night because you can't really bring a lot more. And like that silly descent to be a little bit lower. No, I was going to say, like, it's a it's, the guards can still make an impact offensively, right? Like, yeah. it's definitely still a wing league on defense. Um, I, I think what's hard is, like, yeah, it's a wing league because of guys like LeBron, Giannis, Kate. Like, how many of those guys are coming through the NBA, though? Like, how often are you going to get those type of players? And I guess if you think you're only winning championships with those guys, then... I, I don't know what you do. You just draft one every single year and hope that you eventually hit. I'm, I'm not sure. So I, I did also want to mention, I, I couldn't help but watch the Oklahoma City Thunder. And I realized that they won their first playing game and then lost the second one. So they're not in the playoffs, but obviously a successful year for the Thunder. And I'm watching them play SGA, Josh Gideon, Jalen Williams, all guys who can do things with the ball in their hands. And I couldn't help but think about the Pistons. And here's why, Omari. Those three guys... SGA only takes two and a half threes a game at 35%. Giddy takes 3.1 at 33%. And Jalen Williams only takes 2.8 at 36%. Another guy on the floor with them was Lou Dort, who takes five and a half a game, but just 33%. So my point here is, again, trying to think, okay, if they land number two and they do draft Scoot, is there enough shooting? We take away everything else. Is there enough shooting to play Scoot, Ivy, and K together? And I'm like, the Thunder are making it work. And I realized they didn't make a playoff run, but this is a young team that, that played really well, won a lot of games, won a play-in game. And like, they made it work. And so I just, I think there's ways to make these things work. Like, I don't think everybody on the floor has to be a 38, 42% three-point shooter. Certain guys do to fill their roles. I just, I watched the Thunder and I watched them use Josh Giddy as a ball screen short role player. I watched the Heat play and they're using Jimmy Butler as a ball screener and short role player. And I'm like, 
okay, can we put the ball in Scoot Henderson's hands and then Cade screen, short rolls, draws help, kicks to Ivy, Ivy knocks down a shot or attacks on the second side. I'm just like, I think you can make these things work. And the, even watching these teams play in the playoffs, I'm like, there's creative offensive schemes to, to play guys like this together. Yeah, and I think OKC is a great example of just, you know, how the Pistons can kind of go about this where, like, just like from a big man standpoint, like, Chet was going to be their best big and he ended up missing the whole year. So you don't really have the type of versatile front court play you see from a lot of playoff teams, right? Like, it's very guard driven. And as you mentioned, you know, the guards don't even really shoot <laughs> yeah. know, as well as he would want. You know, like, Giddy's a big guard, gives you playmaking, rebounding. Uh, you know, doesn't give you any floor space. Like, Shea, he's like a mid range, you know, like paint specialist, right? Like, he's got one of the most unique games in the entire league. So, uh, yeah, like, I think the playoffs are fun because you could kind of get a better sense of, like, how certain roster, like where their, their ceilings are, right? You know, I think if you're the Pistons, you have Cade, you have Ivy, he might add Scoot. You look at well, how can these guys work? And it does put pressure on the coaching search maybe to find, you know, a coach who can be, you know, really flexible in their lineups, you know, know how to position guys for success. Uh, one thing I like about Cade is that, like, he can do everything. Like, he can shoot, like, he, he can post up back to the basket. So I think just from a playoff standpoint, it would be really hard for teams kind of scheme Cade off of the floor. And that probably gives you a lot of lineup versatility. So so we'll see. We'll see. You know, I think what's really fun about the NBA now is just you have a lot of good teams and they are, are doing different things, right? It's not, you know, five years ago where you probably had two teams that could win it. Like, you probably have eight teams that could get hot and, like, make a really deep run. Some of those teams are really guard-based. Some of those teams are big-based. You have the Clippers where all their talent is really – and Paul George is out, but it's just like those two wings, right? And you, you even saw during the regular season, they struggled from a playmaking standpoint. They had to do some things to kind of get more playmaking in there. So, uh, I mean, yeah, the playoffs are fun, man. Like, I'm glad we kind of got past the season. I'm glad we're watching some high-stakes basketball. And a lot of the stuff, I think, will – be informative for the Pistons too as they kind of navigate their next steps and trying to get into that mix this time next year. I think it'll be interesting because right now I'm here saying like, hey, the guards are dominating, but we're early in the playoffs, right? And mm. so we may see it play out. What you're saying is, well, eventually, the you know, Jalen Brunson is capped and Trey Young is capped and Steph Curry's capped and we see all these wingy teams make it into the finals in the NBA. And then that, it just... I think as Pistons fans, you can watch this. One, you get a kind of a reminder of what real NBA basketball looks like after watching a Detroit team that was hindered all year long. But also, okay, this is what it's going to take, Oklahoma City Thunder, to get to the play-in game. Like, this is what you got to be able to do. This is what it takes to get to a conference finals. This is what it takes to win an NBA championship. In my opinion, then this is maybe something for a discussion for another day, and it is because we're, we're going to have to wrap it up here, but is – do you have to build the championship structure right now? Or can you just worry about getting better, taking the next step? Okay, let's get to the play-in game. All right, now we're in the play-in game. Why did it not work? Okay, let's maneuver the roster. Now we're getting to the conference finals. Okay, now what do we have to make a move to do to get to a championship where I don't know that you have to build the championship roster right now where just everything fits perfectly. I don't know. I think there's some back and forth on that discussion. Um, but again, that's for another day. I think next week we're going to get back into some NBA draft talk in general, talk about the Pistons and a bunch of prospects. We, you know, we'll still talk about the, the playoffs, I'm sure, at some point throughout that episode. 
But another good one this week, Amari. We got up early on a Monday morning to do this one. Um, but always, I get a little bit of coffee, get to see you and Wes's smiling faces, and I get energized to record the pod. So I had a, I had a blast. I hope our listeners did. Leave us a rating and a review. Amari, take it home, my guy. Yeah, I always wake up. You know, I try to give up coffee this year. I probably only have one cup of coffee, so I wake up with my morning black tea. And this is a good way to start the day. You know, this is, uh, you know, what? It's 8.43 Monday morning. This is what we do for you all. You know, like Bryce has a full work day ahead of him. Uh, and I do not because, you know, it's the off season. So, <laughs> you know, I've half a work day ahead of me. I have to write the story. But uh, regardless, it's always a blast to do this first thing in the morning. And I will close this out. Uh, so, you know, big thanks to our audio producer, Robin Chan, our executive producer, Anjanette Delgado, and our sports editor, Kirkland Crawford. Also, shout out to Wes Davenport, as always. And we will talk to you all next week. 